Welcome to the Student Ministry Matters podcast. We want to encourage, equip, and connect those with a passion to impact the next generation for Jesus Christ. Student ministry can be a lonely place. You might even feel like you're the only one in your church or community that cares about students. Well, know this, you're not alone. People all across the country are engaging Gen Z and care deeply about the spiritual direction of these young men and women. Whether you're full-time, part-time, bivocational, or volunteer, if you have a heart for students, this is the place for you. Welcome again to the Student Ministry Matters podcast. My name's Dan Carson. I'm the director of Student Ministry Matters, and I'm thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue the conversation about student ministry. Now, in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about a harder subject, one that we all need to deal with, all we need to have a knowledge base when it comes to, but it's not something we really want to just sit around and talk about. It's the issue of reporting abuse when we spot that and become aware of it in our students' lives. And so I've invited a friend back with us, and so I'll be introducing her in just a moment. But before I do that, I want to thank our podcast partner, Central Baptist College of Conway. They're challenging, engaging, inspiring. They are the place that you need to send your student if they're trying to figure out their next step in their educational journey and would like to have a Christ-focused education, have them check out cbc.edu. Now, as we record this, we're about mid-August. You know what? They're still taking students for this year, the 22-23 school year, but maybe you've got a sophomore, a junior, a senior who's trying to figure out what's next. Have them contact cbc.edu and set up a visit. I know that they'd love to to hear from you, and they'd love to have an opportunity to share about the school. Well, let me also invite you to CBC for another event that we'll be having on September the 17th. It is our annual Student Ministry Workers Retreat. We're going to spend some time connecting with other student pastors. We're going to hear from Sam Burig and Dr. Jared Bumpers. They're going to be our two featured speakers, as well as having some breakout groups, some goodie bags, and even some door prizes. And so we'd love for you to be there. Go to our website at studentministrymatters.com, and you can find a link on how you can register. I understand that many listening are that uh, bivocational or part-time guy and may not have a lot of extra funds. Uh, but also need to make it for one day. So we have it as a one-day event. It's September the 17th, 9 to 5.30 on a Saturday. And so check it out. We'd love to have you there for that. Well, as I mentioned before, we've invited someone back to our podcast. Hannah Burge is a counselor from Fresh Roots Family Counseling in Rogers, Arkansas. If you'd like to listen to her previous podcast with us, she talks about helping students navigate anxiety. And I'll have a link to that in our show notes. But welcome back to the podcast, Hannah. It's good to be back. Well, Hannah, since being on the podcast last time, you know, I've seen a lot of things go on in your life because like many of us, we share things on social media. But one of the things that I've recently saw is that you changed your social media, your Instagram tag from from one thing to another. Maybe tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. So my social media, I have clients that are now finding me on it. So I thought it's probably time that I make it a little bit more um, business focused. And so, you know, I thought about it and decided I was just going to go ahead and change my handle and kind of change some of my branding. And so my new handle, it's Healing with Hannah, but it's spelled Healing W Hannah. So if you're wanting to follow me on there, I'd love to have you. One of the things that I appreciate about those 
the either the videos or the things that you share in there. It just helps normalize the idea of counseling. And for many of us who grew up in churches, there was always this idea of, you know, rub some Jesus on that problem and it'll go away. There's trauma in our lives. There are things that we experience, and sometimes we need a counselor to step us through that. And so I'd encourage you to, to call up Fresh Roots, schedule a time with Hannah or with any of the other counselors there. There's a fantastic team, and so check that out. And check out at Healing W. Hannah. Awesome, awesome. Well, Hannah, um, today we're talking about this subject of of reporting physical and sexual abuse when we're talking about our students or the children that are within our ministry. And we need some help. We need to understand this idea a little bit better. And Chris Vines, our normal co-host, couldn't be with us today, but we were talking about this whole issue about when to have you on and when to talk about it and when to release this. And as we close the summer out, as we're getting to the end of that time, it is often a time when students are opening up or have opened up over the course of these summer months. Maybe they've gone to a camp or a conference together, and they've shared some things about their home and some things that need to be reported. So we thought this was a great time to have you on. So let me ask, um, I know, and I'd just love for you to share with our audience some of the things that you were doing in this area before uh, taking on this uh, role of a counselor at Fresh Roots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd love to. And so I graduated from my undergrad um, from the University of Arkansas in 2016, and my first job out of college was working for the Department of Human Services. You know, I had um, family members that have worked for them and had worked for them during the, during the time that I was employed with them. And so, you know, they have not the best reputation, but they're great people and they really, really care about children. And I just knew that that was a place that, you know, I wanted to start out, especially being interested in mental health. I wanted to experience what it was actually like working with the community around me. And so my job for DHS was to act as a liaison for community members and specifically with the school system. So I acted as an expert consultant in Fayetteville Public Schools. And I was the person, if you had any questions on hotline calls, if things met criteria for abuse, um, or even just knowing the process that they needed to expect if they were a mandated reporter, you know, once they make a hotline call. So I was kind of that go-to person anyway. So I feel comfortable to be able to have this conversation. And my hope and goal with being able to kind of communicate this to our listeners is to let you know a little bit more about the process so it doesn't feel near as daunting and near as scary because it's really hard whenever you're in a position hearing these really, you know, hard stories from students. So I really hope that this is an educational piece that we can add for listeners to be able to listen to. And I appreciate that so much, Anna. I know that as a student pastor, there have been times when I've heard things from students and gone, uh, what do I do about this? How do I handle this? So what, is, what are my next steps? Now, the difference for me is that I could always turn to my wife. She worked for Child Protection Services in Texas, and she is a professional counselor. So I'm one of the fortunate ones, but not everybody is in that case. And they are often scrambling, trying to figure out what to do next. And so that's one of the reasons that I really wanted to have this conversation. It is an educational piece. And so Part of our goal with Student Ministry Matters is to help you as you are seeking to work with your students and to love on them, 
and to care about them. And that's one of the important things. So let me start with this question. And this might be, I didn't put this on my list, Hannah. So this idea of mandated reporter, can you define that and kind of flesh that out a little bit for us? Yeah. Anyone who is a mandated reporter is a person who's going to be working with vulnerable populations and they have the responsibility to protect vulnerable populations. And so that's going to include, you know, children in some regards that actually includes, you know, adults or people that have especially elderly too. So specifically, we're going to be talking about children in, in, in this regard, but a mandated reporter is anyone who's working with a vulnerable population who has the responsibility to keep them safe. And I know we're talking your experiences here in, te- in Arkansas, not Texas. <laughs> and so my question is, are, what are the legal ramifications for someone who is a mandated reporter and doesn't do that reporting? What, what happens there? Some of that depends on your licensure and kind of the area that you're working in. Now, for instance, because I'm a, you know in the mental health field, my license could potentially be, you know, at risk or in jeopardy if for whatever reasons someone comes around and and they are able to find that I had information about a child who was in danger and I didn't do anything about it. Mm. But there are individuals, um, you know, that are going to be working with children that don't necessarily have a license like on the line. I know in ministry, I'm not quite sure what that looks like for you guys, but I know that you are in the position of hearing students that have these stories and, you know, they're going to be the ones that are coming to you. And so the best thing that I can say about that is p- part of that's just kind of the area that you're working in. Part of that is what is to be expected for your licensure and kind of the ethics that you are practicing under. So you mentioned licensing, um, but I guess, uh, is there a further step? Would there be a point where, uh, the courts might get involved um, if you were found negligent of not reporting? Yes, I, that can happen. You know, okay. if that were to ever, you know, for whatever reason, you know, a child was in danger and then they were severely harmed. And then you found out that they communicated this to their youth pastor mm. and the youth pastor you know, didn't do something to protect them. It's possible that, you know, maybe a parent you know, could potentially want to sue or, you know, that be a part of a legal process. So that's really kind of what you're trying to avoid is any kind of litigation that could come back on you or potentially losing, you know, your position at work or your licensure for the area that you are working in. Well, again, it's not a topic we like to think about. Nobody wants to sit around thinking about our, our kids, our students being abused or harmed. Um, But I think it's important that we have some things in mind beforehand uh, so that we know, okay, what to do, what's next, how do we handle this, and the importance of us taking care of those things. None of us want that that weight on us um, of the broken trust, of the the fact is, okay, we didn't step in and we could have. And that would be just devastating to me personally and I think to many of our listeners. 
And that's not something that happens often. I do want to preface that because it can be really scary as a main data reporter to then feel the weight of this of like, oh my goodness, if I don't report this, something really bad could happen, mm-hmm. you know, even to me. That's something that can happen that you should be aware of, but that's really just to communicate the importance of it. You know, okay. you have this information and now you have a responsibility to do something with it to try to help this vulnerable, you know, student or vulnerable child. Well, let's go ahead and get into a couple of questions that I've got. I know that there are essentially two ways that we become aware of abuse. One is that we see evidence or number two, we hear directly from our students. So let's look at that first one of seeing the evidence of physical or maybe the social after effects. Uh, What are some of the things that we're looking for in regard to physical signs of abuse? Yeah. So when it comes to physical abuse, this can kind of be really tricky, especially on the reporting side or the investigation side on DHS. Because if a child reports to you, hey, I was hit, you know, a month ago by my my stepfather, they might not have those bruises then, but you are still mandated to report that. And once you report that, the investigators at DHS are going to have to find enough evidence to be able to, you know, really prove that that happened. So physical abuse is something that's kind of a tricky area. So one of the things that I can really help you in really kind of paying attention to this is be paying attention to student stories, especially if they have injuries that aren't consistent with an explanation. You know, that's usually a place to be listening to. If they tell you like, oh, I got this injury, but it just doesn't quite match up with what they're, what kind of happened. Or if they're having, you know, if they're wearing clothes that are covering themselves, especially during times of the year, that doesn't make sense to wear a hoodie or like baggy clothing or anything like that. Now, sometimes that's just students, right? They're going to be wearing that no matter what, (laughs) what time of year it is, but you can be paying attention to changes in body behavior, changes in, you know, their their mood and, and things like that to be paying attention to as far as physical abuse. Now, if a child comes to you and they have those injuries already on them, one thing that you can do is, you know, document that in some way by being able to take a picture. Sometimes DHS will use that photo, sometimes they won't. But either way, it's helpful for you to be able to have something documented that they did show you this bruise or they did show you this fracture or or burn or whatever it is. So that way, you know, once it heals, because it's going to heal, that there's some kind of evidence still present. Because that's the challenge for the DHS side of it is if they go in a week later, you know, and usually that's not necessarily true, physical abuse tends to be like a 72-hour investigation. And so they're going to come in a few days later. And if that bruise or mark is already gone, that's going to be really, really hard for them to prove that there was physical abuse unless the child and the parents are able to kind of collaborate that story. So what you, what I'm hearing is that when possible, we should document this. Mm-hmm. Um, now, from a youth pastor standpoint, um, especially a male youth pastor's standpoint, I would always follow that rule of two <laughs> just to, for someone else to, to see the issue and someone that's trusted, mm-hmm. um, but that you can wor- work through this together with. Correct. 
Yeah, and then some of the other symptoms that you could be aware of are going to be the mental health side of it, right? Whenever physical abuse or trauma is occurring, there are going to be residual effects that you are going to see in other kind of ways, such as, you know, they're struggling with their confidence and self-esteem. They're starting to withdraw from social situations or, you know, in situations that they wouldn't normally withdraw from. Depression, anxiety, if they're starting to avoid um, certain things like going to school or if they're telling you like, I just really don't want to go home or I really don't want to go to this place or they're just, just decrease in performance overall, you know, their performance as far as how much they're interacting at youth events, or even if they're telling you that they're struggling in school with their performance there. You know, this is, this is hard to, to hear. I mean, just all of it and, and to, to really think through. And, and because I remember those early days when my wife wouldn't give me any of the details, but knowing that when she was working for child protection services in Texas, knowing these kids, they were, they're being abused. They were being taken advantage of. They were, it, it was just hard. It was just hard to hear. And it's even now I'm sitting here as we're talking and thinking to myself, why, why? <laughs> uh, but you, you said it earlier, this idea that we need to protect the vulnerable populations those students and those children need someone to stand for them. And so it may be difficult. It may be hard. But as we see these things, we've got to take action to it. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the first way, of course, is um, when you're seeing the evidence. Maybe it's the social interactions have changed. Maybe it's the physical, something that they're, they're hiding. Or you, maybe you notice a, maybe you notice a limp that they can't, quite talk about, or maybe they're sitting weird in their chair and, and then do they just not giving you a straight answer about, uh, the other side of it is what happens when that student or child comes and talks to you or one of your youth volunteers. When we first hear those type of accusations and allegations, how should we respond? What is the next step in that case, Hannah? Yeah. Well, the first thing I think you need to do whenever a student is coming to you with this information is before your mind starts racing and going like, what do I need to be doing with this information? Right. Just be present with them. You want to listen carefully to what they're saying. You want to let them know that it was very brave and courageous of them to tell you what they're telling mm -hmm. you now and to let them know that you're taking them seriously, to let them know that it's not their fault that's so important because there's going to be so much shame around this to so let them know that it's not their fault and to be able to let them know that you really care about them and you want to be able to help them. You know, from that point, you need, once you kind of establish that, you kind of have to explain what your next steps are. So if you're unsure if what they're telling you meets criteria, criteria for any kind of abuse, then just be able to say, hey, what you shared with me is really, really important. And I don't want to be the only one that have to make a decision on how to help you. So here, here are my steps. I'm going to maybe staff with someone or just something in that regard. So the child knows or the student knows what your next steps are. And if you know, if it's just clear for you in that moment of, oh, no, this is abuse. And you can't promise that student that you're going to keep that secret. And that's the hardest part. And I experienced that in therapy. It's so hard because you're risking that relationship and you're risking that trust for that moment. But you have to let them know because what they're telling you is so important and that they're in danger, you want to make sure that they're protected. 
and even if it's difficult, what your next steps are to report. And then from there, you can kind of let them know what to expect out of that, which ho I'm hopeful that in our continuing conversation, you can let them know exactly what they need to expect. You shared something very important there. There is an issue of trust. When we talk to clients like you do, or when we're talking to our students, uh, maybe even from the very start, they need to know this idea that, you know, there are certain things that I can't keep confident. And that is the issue of, of self-harm or harm to others. That's usually, I think, the line that that I know that in coaching that I have had, but also I know and believe that's it where it's at with counseling. It's just hard because we know that that it may it's going to make relationships difficult. And in the church, that makes it, there's an extra strain uh, because of, of what's happening with that student and maybe with maybe what's going to happen with their family, because this could be a longtime member or somebody who's very active in the church. Uh, but again, we're talking about the safety of our children and of our students. So let me ask you um, one question that immediately popped to my mind is as they report these things and maybe we pull somebody else in so that, that we have that two there that can hear and kind of step through this together. Do we have or need to have a conversation with the parents before moving forward? How does that work? Yeah. So this, this is an interesting question because it kind of just depends. Okay. <laughs> it kind of depends stylistically, like, the kinds of relationships that you want to foster with the parents of your students. So there's nothing by law as a mandated reporter that tells you that you have to communicate with the parent. There's nothing in that law that says that. But what I, and this is what I tell parents that, you know, whenever I have a teen that's coming into my room, if the abuse is happening outside of the home, I want them to know. And I tell my students that, like, hey, if you report something to me, and if it's not a family member, if it's not someone in your home, then your parent really needs to know about this. Now, if it's happening in the home, if it's happening with a family member or someone that they're seeing regularly, actually don't want to say anything. And here's why. On the investigation side of DHS, they're going to need to come in and have these in interviews with the child and with the parent and other members involved, you know, that would include siblings and, you know, anyone that's living in the home. And if you call the parents, there's a chance that that parent could talk to that child and change the story. And mm. that's unfortunate, but it happens. It, it really does, does it happen. Does. You know, and then that child is going to have to, you know, sit with that shame and, sh and sit with, you know, the potential fear of what's going to happen with this. And so once DHS comes in, then the student's saying, yeah, no, that didn't happen. And then the parents are saying, yeah, no, that didn't happen. And we can't, DHS can't do anything with that. And we, ha they have to have evidence to be able to support the, the claims that are being made. And especially if there's no signs of physical abuse, especially if it happened a week ago or a month ago, there's no physical evidence. The child is saying it didn't happen and the parents are saying it didn't happen. Then the case is just closed. And so if it's happening in the home, you want to make sure that the investigation is going to be as maybe clean as possible. Maybe that's a good mm -hmm. way to do that, like less muddied. And if that abuse is happening in the home, you are potentially adding, um, some challenges for the investigators who are going to be coming in and, and talking to the child and talking to the parents. 
That is a fantastic piece of advice. Uh, that concept of if it's outside of the home, we need to bring the parents in. But if it's inside the home or inside of their small circle, then we need to just make that decision to make that call. Is that what I'm hearing? Correct. And one thing I want to add for this, and you know, maybe there's listeners that know this, maybe there isn't, but you can report anonymously. You don't, when you call the hotline, you don't have to, and you can tell them straight up, I don't, I don't want my information on here. Cause once, once a family is being investigated, they have the right to know exactly what they're being investigated for. Right. So, you know, there's potential that even though reporters can't be revealed, that's something that's very important. But for instance, if I called and I wanted to be anonymous, but in my narrative, I say a child in therapy disclosed such and such and such. <laughs> okay, well, I just gave myself away. Right. 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 Like, so you, if you want to be anonymous, make sure what you are sharing to the hotline isn't going to reveal parts, you know, reveal that it was you basically is, a, is what I'm trying to say. You know, the, the benefit of not being an anonymous reporter is once that investigation is handed over to DHS, a reporter should call you or not reporter and an investigator should call you and hear your side of the story. So you have the potential to be able to advocate for that student during that phone call if you're not anonymous. Mm. And, you know, investigators that have been on the field for a really long time would be willing to be able to call you back at the end of the investigation to kind of let you know what's going on, whether they're going to continue it or, or stop it. Now, that doesn't always happen, so I don't want to make that promise that that will happen, but really good investigators are going to circle back around to you. And so if you're not anonymous, they're able to do that. But if you're worried about backlash or if you're worried just what could happen if someone knows that you made the hotline call, you have the option to be anonymous. Well, I know that, of course, this is in the context of Arkansas. And there is a possibility that your state, if you're listening to one of the 49 other states, it, it may be different in your situation. But it doesn't change the need for us to, to do our best and for you to do some research figuring out if you want to report anonymously, if your state allows for that, or if you want to be on record. It's it's a tough call, um, again, because of some of the interpersonal issues that you might be dealing with in the church. But having that as a part of your narrative, as, as you put it, um, if I say, well, at youth group, they told me this. Well, <laughs> I assume that they're going to, the uh, accused parents or adults that are in this situation are going to have access to that mm -hmm. statement at some point. Is that yeah, also yeah. correct? Yeah. They, they have the right to know exactly what they're being accused of. Okay. Right? And so, and a lot of times, you know, things just happen and, and parents really aren't in a situation where they are abusing or they are neglecting. There's a little bit more to the story. And so we don't necessarily want parents to get in trouble either, right? We, we need them to have the opportunity and a chance to be able to give their side of the story too. And the mm -hmm. only way they can do that if they know, is if they know what's going on, if they know what they're being accused of. So we've talked about kind of that awareness that comes on the student pastor, student ministry worker. They find out about it in one form or another. They see this, there is a need. So what, what are those next steps afterwards? Let's say I've got somebody that I've been involved 
with uh, that's in my student ministry, and then I realize, oh, they need there needs to be a report made. I understand here in the state of Arkansas, do we have a, a hotline that is for Arkansas Department of Health and Services, or yes. what's that look like? Yeah, there is, and uh, I mean, I have that number saved in my phone. So I oh, don't okay. <laughs> my head, I can definitely pull sure. it. Me too. Uh-oh, no, we'll but we'll put that in the the show notes for I those here in Arkansas. Yeah, that should be super helpful. So, say you're in that position. All right. Well, first thing I want to tell you is you need to try to report as soon as possible, and there's reasons for that. If that child is in a dangerous situation, you don't want to just sit on your hands for a little bit. So you right. want to be able to talk to people that you need to talk to, staff with people that you need to t- talk to at the church. But your next step is to try to report as soon as possible. I prefer to call the hotline. If you're an educator or in a position where you can't call the hotline, you can fax in a hotline. Um, The benefits of being able to call that hotline in is you're able to talk to a person. And I just think that's a little bit more personal. Sometimes those, those wait, that wait call can be a little bit long, but it's just, I don't know. I prefer to call it in rather than fax it in. So once you call it in, the hotline is actually a completely different entity than the Department of Human Services. Their job is just to filter the calls. They aren't the Mm. ones investigating it. They're not the caseworkers. They are a completely separate unit. So say you call it in and it doesn't meet the criteria for anything. They will let you know on the spot, this doesn't meet the criteria for such and such. It'll just be documented. So if you're finding yourself in a position and you really just don't know if something is reportable or not, you can call the hotline and see if it even meets criteria for it or not. And if it doesn't meet criteria for it, it's not like that vanishes in thin air. It's just documented. But say there is enough evidence, you know, to move to the next step where that hotline call is accepted. There's two different kind of avenues that this hotline call could go in. If there is potential that there might be criminal charges for sexual abuse or for severe physical abuse, that hotline call is going to go to CACD. That's the Crimes Against Children Division. So they are investigators, but they also work with law enforcement. So anything that could potentially have a criminal aspect to it, especially if there's sexual abuse involved, that's going to go that avenue. Mm. Okay. So say it doesn't meet any criteria where there's going to be any criminal charges or anything like that. Then it goes to the Department of Human Services. So once it's at the Department of Human Services, the first step is it's going to go into the investigation stage. And once it's in the investigation stage, an investigator has 45 days to interview everyone that they need to interview and to come to a decision on the next step of the case. If it is um, a situation where that child is immediately in danger, that would be classified as you know, a P1, a priority one investigation. So the investigator has 24 hours to make an attempt to try to find the child. Now, sometimes that goes planned and sometimes it it doesn't go as planned, especially if we're trying to locate a child or find their home or trying to catch them at school or anything like that. But our investigators, I keep saying our as if I'm still working for DHS, but (laughs) (laughs) investigators, um, they have to show that they made an effort to find that child within 24 hours. Now, if the child is in danger, but it's not a life or death situation, that's going to be classified as a P2. So they have 72 hours to try to make contact with, with the child that's in danger. 
So the first thing an investigator is going to do is they're going to interview the child. They're going to interview other people in the home. And they're going to take that interviews and really kind of see if that meets criteria for abuse. Then they're going to have staffings with supervisors. And there's going to be a decision that's made within that 45 days to say, yes, there is substantial ed evidence here. So we're going to do something about it. Or there's not evidence here and we can't substantiate it. So it's going to be kind of closed. It's going to be unsubstantiated. And so if, if it's closed, nothing happens with that. Now, that case is closed. Parents' names aren't put on any kind of child maltreatment regist registry or anything like that. It's just like that's done. It's closed. Now, if they find true for an investigation, now there's two different avenues that this can go in. If the child is immediately in danger and they need to be removed from the home, that's the foster care system. Now, I do want to say DHS does not want to take kids from their homes. We don't want any more, you know, kids in foster care. So if we can do something, we definitely don't want kids in the foster care system. But sometimes that's just unavoidable. Now, if we if there is a true finding of abuse, but it's not to that extent of needing to remove the child from the home, then what's going to happen is the Department of Human Services is going to open up a protective service case. A protective service case is just there to support the family and help remediate the situation so that the child and the family has support. And what that looks like is you're going to have a caseworker that's going to check on you monthly. If it's you know really severe, they might do like biweekly for a period of time. And what they need in order for them to close out that protective service case is they need to see progress in the family. They need to see that, you know, the child is making progress or the family has made efforts to remedy the situation. So, you know, an example of a protective service case, if I was a caseworker, I'd want to be able to see that the parents are protective, that they're taking this seriously, and they're taking steps to be able to help their child. You know, sometimes that looks like counseling, sometimes it doesn't, but caseworkers are wanting to make sure that if they close that case, that child is still going to be safe. And so from that hotline call all the way through, that's what to expect from the DHS side of it. Now going back to CACD, same thing kind of happens, right? There's going to be an investigation and if they find something, then at that point, they're going to offer services to the family. You know, we have really great services up here in Northwest Arkansas. We have the Child Safety Center and, you know, the Child Advocacy Center who will automatically offer counseling services to the children and to the families if, you know, if they go the CACD route. But in, those are just two different avenues that a hotline call can go down. But, you know, really what a reporter needs to know is making a hotline call does not automatically mean that that child is going to be removed from the home. It just means that there's some steps that need to happen to see if that if there was abuse or ne neglect kind of occurring. You know, I think that's a, a great point there that you just shared is that the point of DHS or whatever organization is in your state, they're really not trying to bust up everyone's family. That's not the goal. The ultimate goal is safety for the child and really a good, healthy family situation. And don't get me wrong. I know that there are people that have had some really hard situations with DHS. So I want to honor that and I want to validate yeah. that. Yeah. I really hope that our listeners can know that 
these people really, really care and they want to do what's best for children and what's best for families. And so as a reporter, your, your goal is just to help, help that process to, to allow that to move forward so that that child does get some support in some way. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for being on the podcast again today and and talking about really a difficult subject. And so as our listeners have had the opportunity to to learn a bit more about the process here in Arkansas, um, but also how to even approach it wherever they find themselves, it's just been a real treat to have you back. Yeah. I'm so glad to be back. I'd like to add just one more thing since it's sure. on my mind, if that's okay. But um, as a reporter too, I just want to encourage you guys, you don't, you aren't the ones that are doing the investigation. So you don't have to sit down with a child and like find all of the ins and outs and to ask these questions for from the child. Really, that's the interviewer's job. So know that you don't have that burden on you as a reporter to have all of that information. Your job is just to be able to support that child, to listen to what they're telling you. And if what they're telling you feels off, if that feels like abuse or neglect, just don't allow yourself to be the last person that has that knowledge. Again, thank you so much, Anna. Well, listeners, thank you for tuning in, dropping and downloading. Um, We love to, to hear from you. So send us an email Uh, We'd love some feedback on topics that you'd like for us to cover. Uh, I think this has been an important one for us today. And we do all of these things because student ministry matters. Thanks for listening to the Student Ministry Matters podcast. Get connected at studentministrymatters.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Student Ministry Matters. Until next time, keep up the great work with your students because the work matters.